Well, good morning. Happy Easter to you all. I want to give a special uh, welcome to our Burlington and Fort Madison campuses, as well as those uh, of you who are watching online. Uh, it's wonderful to be able to gather today and to celebrate the, the most amazing truth in the world, the truth that Jesus Christ is alive, and because he is, so are those who believe in him. Amen? Now, I... Um, I'm especially excited uh, to be able to, to gather and worship uh, this year because, of course, we, we didn't get to do that last year, right? So this seems to, to me just to make this day even more uh, special than normal. And, and for me, of course, it's going to be more special because last year, uh, I've told you this, I, I preached um, to an empty room, and then the next day I watched myself preach with my family giving me live commentary, all right? <laughs> That's not going to happen today. They'll just do it over lunch, which uh, will be bad too, but won't be nearly as bad as it was last year. Uh, I also need to be transparent uh, with you this morning. I'm, I'm a little uh, amped up because I've drank a, a lot of caffeine uh, this morning. Uh, and I've done that because I got wrapped up in the Final Four game last night and missed my bedtime. So um, I go to bed relatively early, especially on Saturday night, but I got caught up in the game and about my bedtime was, I know some of you think it's like 7.30, it's not exactly 7.30, it's a little later than that, but um, it was halftime and it was really, really close and I'm saying, well, maybe I should just watch a little bit into the, you know, into the second half because Gonzaga's going to blow them out, but then it went on and went on and went on and then it went into overtime and then I was way past my bedtime, so uh, I drank a lot of caffeine, that's one of the reasons that I'm amped up uh, here uh, today. Anyway, on a much more serious note, though, uh, while we do have much to rejoice in today, uh, the reality for um, many of us is that our joy is tempered by what we've experienced over the last year. In truth, the last year has been hard on all of us, right? And for many of us, it has been nothing less than tragic. This uh, was reinforced for me um, recently, in fact, just this week, when within a 12-hour period, I had conversations with or about not one, two, three, four, but five different families that were going through incredibly difficult circumstances. Therefore, I know here at Easter 2021, many of us are burdened and heavy-hearted. And I want to say this, if this is you, you need to understand that if you're having a hard time kind of celebrating today, it's okay. If you're struggling, if you're wrestling to say, uh, I don't know if I can really rejoice and I can really get into it, we completely understand. I just hope over the next few moments that you're going to find some answers and the hope that you need for what you're going through right now. That's why I've chosen John chapter 11 as our text today. You see, in John chapter 11, we're told the story of a family who grows through a really, really difficult tragedy, and yet in the midst of it finds answers and hope, the kind of answers and hope that we need in the tragedies that we face in life. So if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 11 if you're not already there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the, uh, or under the chair in front of you. You can grab that out and uh, page 703 in that Bible. And by the way, if you, you need a Bible, feel free to take that one home as our Easter gift to you. And we're gonna pick up in verse one of John chapter 11. The apostle John, who saw these events take place, tells us this, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, 
He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Judea is the region in which Bethany is located. Now, these first seven verses introduce us to the main characters, the main problem, and the main point of this story. The main characters, of course, are Jesus and three siblings named Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And it's obvious from verse five that they have a very special relationship with Jesus. Jesus loves them, and they love Jesus. And in fact, these are three of the most, or the closest people to Jesus during his time here on this earth. However, this relationship is about to get tested because Lazarus gets sick and his sisters expect Jesus to do something about it. We have to keep in mind here that in those days, pretty much any sickness could turn into a deadly one. They didn't have the medical knowledge or the technology that we do. So even a a common cold could quickly um, escalate into something tragic. You know how right now um, when you're out in public and you cough or sneeze, and you get nervous because you're, you're afraid that everybody around you is going to think that you have a deadly disease. I was actually in Hy-Vee a couple of weeks ago, and I got this little um, thing, little tickle in my throat, and I'm like, I really do not want to cough. I want to stifle it. I tried to stifle it. Sorry, to stifle it. Finally, it let out, and I looked around just making sure nobody actually saw me so that we didn't going to have this major incident in the grocery store. Well, back then, if you had any sign of sickness, it was the cause for lots of concern. However, that's not actually the main problem here in the story. The main problem is the fact that when Jesus gets word from Martha and Mary about Lazarus's illness, he doesn't do what they want him to do. They want him to drop everything and to come running to heal Lazarus. They know that he can heal Lazarus, so they want him to do that. They think, hey, Lazarus is his very good friend. Of course he's gonna do that. But Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, the text tells us that he waits around for two days, virtually doing nothing, and then only when he hears, verse 14 we see, that Lazarus dies, does Jesus actually start on the journey to Bethany. So can you you see the problem here? Can you see the tension? The tension that's brought out in verse 6, where John tells us that that after he has just said that, that Jesus loves these three, He goes on to say, so, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. In other words, Jesus didn't go and heal Lazarus because he loved Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Now let's be honest. This is not the way that we think, right? We think if Jesus loves us, he's going to do what we want him to do. He's going to answer our prayers. He's going to heal our sick, our lo- a sick loved one. He's going to fix our marriage. He's going to prevent us from facing tragedy. Now, you may have never actually said that, but, but haven't you, after something tragic or difficult has happened, and Jesus hasn't done what you wanted him to do, haven't you questioned whether he loves you? whether he is concerned about you, whether he cares about what you're going through, haven't you perhaps even questioned if he really is there? We all have, haven't we? If we're honest enough. 
And that is why, right from the beginning, we need to understand the main point of this story. A main point that Jesus makes very clear in verse 4. I want you to look at it with me again. In verse 4, Jesus says this, this illness did not lead to death. Now, what he means there is ultimately the end of this illness will not be death. Rather, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let me explain what this means. Jesus is saying that he's going to allow this family to experience tragedy in order that they may come to know who he really is. You see, even though these three thought that they knew who Jesus was, they actually didn't know who he was. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus says, I'm going to allow them to go through this tragedy so that they might really come to know him, that they might really come to experience him in a much more significant way. You see, there were some major gaps in this family and their understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so Jesus, in his love, sovereignly allows this tragedy to occur so their gaps and their understanding of who he is and what he came to do might be filled. And let me say this. I can't tell you all the reasons God allows tragedy to come into our lives. But I can tell you the primary reason he does so. He does so because he wants to fill in the gaps we have in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And he wants to fill in those gaps because in his love... He knows the thing we need most isn't to get what we want, but what we need. And the thing that we need more than anything else in the world is to truly know who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. Because I, I can tell you, listen, you can have everything you want. God can answer every prayer you ever ask for. He can prevent any tragedy from coming into your life. But if you don't actually come to know who Jesus really is and what he came to do, it will be for naught it won't in the end ultimately matter. Because the only thing that can actually change your eternity is truly coming to know who Jesus is and what he came to do. So I wanna say this to you today. Most of you, maybe all of you, think that you know who Jesus is and what he came to do. You think that you know, but I have to tell you today that many of you actually, you, you don't. You, you don't know and, and you don't understand and so what I want you to see today is through this tragedy that, that, that God sovereignly allows into this family's life, that through that, they actually come to know who this man is and what he came to do. So with that said, let's look at how Jesus' friends come to know who he really is. Jump down with me uh, to verse 17, where John tells us this. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained in the house. A word about these two sisters. They kind of fit the stereotype of the older sister and the younger sister. Martha is the older type A, gonna take charge sister, and Mary is the younger, kind of easygoing, go-with-the-flow sister. You know how this a lot of time works in families, okay? You know what I'm talking about here? The, the oldest sister tends to be the second mother. The younger sister tends to hang out, uh, tends to be a little more sensitive, a little more emotional. You have no idea what I'm talking about here. Maybe you shouldn't because this isn't how it works in my family, actually. I have three sisters. They're all type A, all right? So like on, on Easter Sunday, 
We've got our Excel spreadsheet of who's bringing what. We've got our time set. We're going to do this at this time, this at this time, this at this time. And uh, it's a good thing that I'm actually not going to Easter lunch today because I'd probably be uninvited at this point. I love you all. I'm thankful for the gifts, all right? But, thankful for your gifts, all right? But in this family, Martha is always the, the take charge. Mary is the one who's just kind of going to go for the flow, go with the flow and hang out. What's interesting, though, is that they actually have the same response to Jesus. It just comes out in different ways. Martha goes and confronts Jesus while Mary avoids him. What we really need to see, though, is that Jesus responds to both of them in a way that reveals who he truly is. Let's look at how he does this first with Martha. Verse 21 tells us this. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha's kind of being passive aggressive with Jesus here. She's both affirming and accusing him at the same time. And in response, Jesus says to her, look at verse 22, um, verse 23, sorry. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I know this might be confusing, but here's what Jesus is telling Martha. He's telling her two closely related things. First, he's telling her that he's the one who's going to bring about the resurrection on the last day. Jews in the first century, almost all of them believed in a future resurrection of God's people. And so Martha is affirming this. She's affirming that, that she believes that on the last day, Lazarus is going to be resurrected to eternal life. However, in response, what Jesus is telling her is, yes, that's going to happen. But you need to know that I am the one who is going to bring that resurrection about. But then second, Jesus goes further and tells Martha that he's also the one who's going to bring resurrection, i.e. life, right now. So the resurrection, that word means in the future, resurrection. Life means I'm going to bring life right now. Jesus, therefore, is claiming that he's the one who will not only bring life in the future, he's also the one who brings life right now in the present. This means, and get this, Jesus here is revealing to Martha that he's God come in the flesh to bring eternal life. Life that can be had right here and now. Life that continues whether someone lives or dies. You may be thinking, well, what's this big deal about life? Why do I, I need life? I'm alive. What are you talking about life? Well, here's the truth, friends. We all come into this world, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our transgressions and sin. So when we are born, we come into this world spiritually dead. We're alive on the outside. It's true of everybody in here today. I'm questioning some of you right now. It looks like you're already nodding off. But, but we're all alive, right? We're, we're, we're all breathing. But the reality is that spiritually we are dead. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. And we are on our way to an eternity completely devoid of him and his goodness in hell forever. That is the reality that we all come into this life with. And that's why we need to be given life, spiritual life, life that we receive now and that goes on into eternity. Now here's the difficult thing 
about this spiritual deadness, the only way that you can actually recognize that you are spiritually dead is if God does what? He actually makes you alive, right? Because what can a dead person do? A dead person can do nothing. So, so some of you are right now saying, I have no idea what you're talking about, and I don't feel like I'm dead. I don't see that I'm dead. Do you know what that means? I, I just want to be, I'm being really honest with you. That means you're dead, okay? It means that you're dead, and you need to be made alive. Now, here's the great thing. You've come to the right place today because I'm going to tell you how you can become alive. And how you become alive? Well, Jesus actually tells it, right? I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to repeat what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever does what? Here's the key word. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever believes in me shall never die. Now, that sounds confusing, but basically what Jesus is saying is that whoever believes in me becomes alive and they will never, ever die. They will never, ever die. So the question is today is, do you actually believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And let me explain to you what believe means. Believe does not mean what most of us think it means. It does not mean to simply say, yes, I assent to that. So you're here on Easter Sunday morning. So at least at, at some level, you're saying, I have a belief that there was this guy, Jesus, and he died on a cross and he rose again. Yeah, I, I get that. All right, I will affirm that. That's not belief. Belief is taking what you, you have here and it actually transferring it to your heart so that you say, I am going to give my life to this reality, to this truth, that I am going to trust my entire life, my entire presence, my entire future to the reality that this man who came 2,000 years ago was actually God in the flesh, that he lived a perfect life that I can't live, and at the end of that life, they nailed him to a cross where he died for my sins, taking my penalty so that through faith in him, I can be restored to a relationship with God. And then, three days later, to confirm that all of this is true, he came out of the grave. So, so listen, this, this we're talking about today and that we're celebrating here is, is, is all based on the fact of whether that tomb was empty and whether Jesus really came out of it. And I just want to encourage you, if you question that, it can be proven historically that the tomb was empty and it's still empty today. They never found a body. And why did they never find a body? Because there wasn't a body to be found, Right? Because he resurrected and he is still alive today. So here's the question I want to ask you today. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Note that that's actually what Jesus asked Martha, right? Now, remember, Martha knew Jesus, knew lots of things about, knew a lot more about Jesus than we do, right? And yet Jesus says, you don't actually know me because I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the son of God come to bring eternal life. And so then he presses her and he says, do you believe this? Do you give your life to this? And that's my question for you today. It's actually Jesus' question for all of us. Do you believe this? And I want you to note how Martha responds. Martha gets a bad rap some of the time because Mary is like the, the golden child, which the younger one normally is, right? All right? Martha gets a bad rap, but I want you to note her statement here. Notice her statement here she says this in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Can you say the same thing? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That means the Son of God, 
who came into this world. Do you believe this? And if you came in today not believing this, not trusting in this, in just a few moments, I'm going to give you the opportunity to place your faith, your trust in Jesus, and to receive eternal life. And I want to urge you today to do so. Now, the reason I said a few moments is because, of course, we're not done with the text. We're not done with the story. Some of you are looking at your watches or your phones right now. You say, there's no way he can possibly be done. And you're right. All right? You're right. That's because Jesus still has more to reveal to us about who he is. And it's really, really good. So let's now look at how Jesus turns his attention from Martha to Mary. After speaking with Martha, Jesus sends her to get Mary. And so in verse 32, we see this. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Word for word, what Martha said, but you know, this is a little bit different because when Mary comes to Jesus, she, she can't even stand. She's in such grief she is so emotional that she just throws herself at Jesus' feet. I'm sure many of us can identify with Mary here. She's devastated by the death of her brother, and she's also deeply hurt by Jesus' refusal to heal him. And as a result, she can do nothing but simply fall on the ground and weep. Now, here's the truth that I know, being a pastor here for many years at this point, I know that most of you in this room can identify with Mary. And a lot of you can identify just over the last year. We've done more funerals. I've done more funerals in the last year than I've ever done in my entire career, 20-plus year career. I've talked and, and we've counseled and we've ministered to more hurting people than it seems like double the, the, the much, as much as we normally do. So I know that most of you know what it's like to stand in front of a casket and weep. I know that many of you know what it's like to sit at a bedside and hold a loved one's hand as they take their last few breaths. I know that many of you know what it's like to have a relationship that is in tatters. I know that many of you know what it's like to sit outside of a nursing home and only be able to talk to your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa through a window. I know that many, if not all of you, know what it's like to be in Mary's shoes. And so what I want you to see today, probably more than anything, is I want you to see how Jesus responds to Mary in her darkest moment. Look at verse 33. It tells us this. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Bible Jesus wept. To Martha, Jesus reveals his deity, but to Mary, he reveals the depth of his humanity. And I want to give you a quick side note here. If you come from more of a, a liberal church background, you're probably more comfortable with Jesus' humanity than his deity. And if you come from more of a conservative church background, you're probably more comfortable with Jesus' deity than his humanity. Liberal churches tend to downplay or even deny the deity of Jesus. While on the other hand, conservative churches often have a hard time wrestling with and dealing with and coming to grips with the humanity of Jesus. 
However, the Bible is clear that Jesus is both fully God and fully man in one person. So Jesus not was, Jesus still is 100% God and 100% human. Now, if you're like, how does that work? Honestly, I can't tell you. And if anybody says that they can, they're, they're lying, all right? We are not as finite humans able to understand the complexity of who Jesus is. But let me just tell you this. It's a really good thing that Jesus is both fully God and fully human because it's what we need. And it's, because it's what we need because in order for Jesus to save us, he has to be God because only God can save and in order for us to be able to identify with Jesus and Jesus to identify with us and to pay the penalty for our sin, Jesus has to be fully human. Fully God, fully human in one person. Why does all of this matter? Well, it's only because if we believe in who Jesus truly is that we can be saved. Jesus says three chapters later, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the me there is the Jesus who is both fully God and fully man in one person. Now that said, the focus here is on Jesus' humanity. And we can see his humanity in the two emotions he expresses. The first emotion is anger. Anger. The phrase deeply moved there is probably better translated indignant. The Greek word literally means to, to snort like a horse. Now, I don't know a whole lot of things about horses, but here's one thing I know. When a horse snorts, a horse is angry. So we should see Jesus here. We should literally picture him as he comes to the tomb and he sees Mary and her friends weeping, that his nostrils are flaring and he is in a rage. That, that really is what the word is indicating. Jesus is in a rage at what is going on. However, we need to be clear here that he's not in a rage at Mary and her friends. He's not angry because they're weeping. Rather, he is angry at what sin and death has brought upon people that he loves. He is furious over the suffering that his people are experiencing. But I want you to note that Jesus isn't just angry. He's also grieved. When he sees Mary and her friends weeping, he weeps with them. He feels for them and with him. And by the way, this doesn't mean that Jesus just has a little tear trickling down, okay, from his eye. It means that he is literally sobbing uncontrollably. Now, I recognize that this is not the way that we typically look at Jesus. But my friends, that is what the text is telling us. And here's the interesting thing. What's Jesus about to do? We know what he's about to do, right? We're jumping ahead here. But Jesus is just about to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? So he's about to undo everything that everybody is weeping about. So we could look at it logically and say, why in the world is he crying? Why in the world is he angry? He's going to raise him from the dead. There's no reason to cry. You know, if you do that with your children, it doesn't work, right? Why are you crying? Stop crying, right? That's kind of the attitude we're having to Jesus. What are you doing here? Let me tell you what Jesus is doing, or at least what I think that Jesus is doing. Jesus is not actually angry and he's not actually weeping for Mary's sake. He's angry and he's weeping for our sake. Because Jesus knows that we're going to find ourselves in the same place that Mary does. He's going to undo what Mary is weeping about. He doesn't really need to be angry and, and weep for her. Like two minutes later, Lazarus is coming back from the dead. But you got to get this, friends. Jesus, I really believe that Jesus is showing this emotion for us so that when we stand in front of the casket... 
when we go through that tragedy, when life comes crashing down on us, that we know that Jesus is both angry about what's happening to us and he is also hurting, he is weeping, he is struggling with us. In fact, I'm gonna go so far as to say this. I really believe that Jesus, when we go through difficult times and we are hurting, he actually hurts more than we do. He hurts more than we do. You may think, how in the world is that possible? You don't know what you're talking about, Chris. Well, let me say this. Jesus was the perfect human. And being the perfect human, that means that his emotions were untainted by sin. All of our emotions are, are tainted by sin, right? So we tend to, when we get angry, we don't get righteously angry most of the time, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about here? We've all been angry, right? We've all been angry. I can make you angry right now. I have a gift at that, actually, but I won't use it this morning. I'm trying to encourage you. We, we don't get righteously angry most of the time. Jesus is always righteously angry, appropriately angry, deeply angry. And he also weeps and grieves more deeply than we do because he actually understands even more than we do what we are going through. And he sees more clearly the defects that sin brings into this world, the destruction that it brings into this world. I'll give an example here. Um, early, uh, in the early 2000s, I visited uh, Sierra Leone, West Africa. And if you don't know anything about Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone West Africa, um, it is one of the most um, uh, impoverished and difficult places in the world to live. And that was especially true in the early 2000s because they had just come out of a decade-long civil war. And it was absolutely, absolutely brutal. If you ever watched the movie A Blood Diamond with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, that depicts what happened in Sierra Leone, and it does so realistically. It's not like most movies, which is completely unrealistic. This is a true picture, and I've been there several times, so I could tell you that that is actually the case. And one of the things that the rebel forces who came in from uh, the neighboring country to, to take over did to instill terror in the citizens was they went around, and they went to young men specifically, and they said, hey, do you want short sleeves or do you want long sleeves? And if they said, I want uh, long sleeves, they cut off the wrist. And if they wanted short sleeves, they cut it off at the elbow. Sometimes on both limbs. And while I was there, one of the things we did, it was a mission trip. We went to those amputee camps to hear their stories, to try to pray with them, and to encourage them. And I would just tell you that is something that I will never forget. And that in that moment, I was angry. You know, I wanted justice. And I was also compassionate. I grieved for what they had and would continue to go through. But the reality, friends, is that my emotions at that time were probably at the best tepid. And by the time that I got home, they were almost entirely gone. I had really forgotten about the injustice and my compassion had faded. And why is that the case? Because my emotions are tainted by sin. That's not the case with Jesus. And so he feels righteous anger more than we do, a lot more than we do, and he grieves a lot more than we do. And some of you today really need to hear this. Jesus knows what you're going through, and his heart is broken over. It's completely and utterly broken over. But, of course, that leads to a big question then, right? If you're thinking right now, it leads to a big question— if this is how Jesus feels about our suffering, and since he's God and therefore can do something about it, then why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he step in to my tragedy? 
Well, that's what the rest of the story answers for. So look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, John's trying to get across something to us here, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. You gotta love Martha, don't you? You gotta love the practicality, right? Jesus just told her, I'm gonna raise your brother from the dead, but she's saying, you know, Jesus, if you do it's gonna get really stinky first. I'm not sure that I really want you to do that. But nevertheless, after Jesus rebukes her, she consents and they move the stone away. And after they move the stone away, Jesus prays to his Father in heaven. And then he says three words. Actually, he shouts three words. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. And what does Lazarus do? He comes out of the grave. He walks out of the grave. Now, you've probably heard it said before that Jesus was specific in saying Lazarus' name because if he wasn't specific, all of the dead would have risen that day. Now, that might just be preacher's rhetoric, but what we need to see here is this is another evidence that Jesus is God, that he is the God who can cause things to happen by simply speaking them into existence. Jesus speaks the word and the dead are raised. Now, this though still is great, right? But we have to ask, what does this have to do with our struggles and our difficulties and our troubles? So you might say today, hey, I see Jesus doing something for this family, but why doesn't he do something for me? If you're honest today, you're probably asking this question. And what I want to tell you and what I want to proclaim to you today from God's word that he has done something for you. He has done something for you. And we see what he has done in the aftermath of this story. In verse 53, we are told that because Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish religious leaders decide we've got to get rid of him. We've got to do away with him. He's causing too much trouble. He's getting too much attention. And so verse 53 says they make plans to put him to death, which of course is exactly what they do a few weeks after this. So, so here's what we need to see. We need to see that when Jesus made the decision to go to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, he was making the decision to sacrifice himself. Can you see that? Jesus, he knew what was going to happen. In fact, his disciples knew what was gonna happen. I encourage you to read later verses eight through 16. We didn't read those. But when Jesus says, hey, we're gonna go to Judea again, his disciples say, what in the world are you thinking? They just tried to kill you. And if you go there, they're going to kill you. And Jesus says, well, I have to do what my father has told me to do. And I just love it. Uh, Thomas, you know, who will be known for all eternity as doubting Thomas. You know what Thomas says to him? Let us go with him that we might die too. So get this, Jesus and the disciples knew what was gonna happen if Jesus went and raised Lazarus and yet he did it anyways. In other words, Jesus knew that if he was gonna bring Lazarus out of the grave, where was he gonna end up? He was gonna end up in the grave. To stop Lazarus's funeral, he had to actually cause his own. And what we all need to understand today, brothers and sisters, is he has done the same thing for us. When 2,000 years ago, God the Father looked at Jesus, God the Son, and said, hey, I need you to go to earth. 
I need you to go on a rescue mission. Jesus said, I will, and in saying I will, and in taking on human flesh, he was making the decision to give his life as a ransom for us, to die in our place. Jesus intentionally came to this earth. This Jesus that we, that we sing about and that we read about and that we study about and that billions of people have followed, that same Jesus is the one who decided, determined to come and to give his life in our place. Do you remember how Jesus hung on the cross? The religious leaders mocked him. And they said to him, you saved others. Why didn't you save yourself? What's the truth? The truth is, is that Jesus didn't save himself so that he could save us. Jesus willingly gave himself up to suffering and death. And he did so in order that there might come a day where we will experience these things no more. What has Jesus done about your suffering and your difficulty? He's done the greatest thing that could ever be done. He came and he gave his life. So that there might be a day where all of our suffering, all of our difficulty, all of our tragedy will be over. So again, I can't tell you all the reasons why God allows you to face difficulty in your life. But I can tell you this. In whatever you're going through, just like Martha and Mary, God wants you to see the glory of his son. The glory of his son who, although he was God, also became a man. So that he could suffer for you. So that he could suffer with you and eventually bring about the day where you will suffer no more. And let me just proclaim this to you today. Here's what the resurrection tells us. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits. And the first fruits is what indicates what's coming later. And what's coming later after Jesus' resurrection is the resurrection of all who believe in him into a future where there will be no more suffering ever. So what has he done about your struggle, your tragedy, your difficulty, your loneliness, your addiction? He's come and given his life. So there will come a day where you will not have to struggle with those ever again. But here's the question, or the issue. That's only true for those who believe in Jesus. It's only true for those who give their life to him. Let me just tell you this. You, you might think that it doesn't matter if Jesus lived, died, and rose again, but if Jesus didn't die and rise again, then life is meaningless. There's no hope. We're in our suffering, we're in our sin, we're in our difficulty, and it's just gonna go on repeat for however long until, I guess, the world ends. But if Jesus did come, and he did die, and he did rise again, then there's true hope. There's hope that all of this struggle and all of this difficulty and all these trials is not meaningless, but rather it is God's means for teaching us the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do so that we might believe in it and have the hope of eternal life. Do you have that hope today?